Hi, friends. I'm Katie. And I'm Olivia. And we are Podcast by Proxy, Canadian True Crime. Welcome. We're live. Again. Take two. After technical difficulties. They never... <laughs> I've been having those more uh, lately. I'm not loving it, but... That's all right. I think it's the heat. I'm blaming the heat for everything. You blame the heat for everything always. So that, that tracks for sure. <laughs> that tracks. I mean, some things are just fact. I don't mind the heat, but that's just me. Ugh. I have a sweater on my lap just in case I get cold. Uh, yeah, welcome back, everyone, to the show. We have part two, and if you follow us on Instagram, you now know that we are going to be having part three and four. Um, <laughs> it's got a little bit out of hand. It got it got away from me, but I have we have been getting a lot of messages about that you guys like this series, so thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I guess maybe um, series are a thing we should try out more. I'm so happy because this series in particular has really taken over my brain um i was kind of near and dear to you as well it is but i it has consumed me i was telling katie <laughs> the other day i was doing my chores at the barn with the horses and i needed to kick them out of their stalls so that i could clean them um <laughs> and i and i didn't mean to but i asked them to get out of their cells so i mean i think that i might be losing it um <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Peta's over there just giving you a golf clap. Just yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Can you please exit your cell? Uh, this isn't working for me. But yeah. So we're on part two today. If you don't follow us already on socials, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, at Podcast by Proxy. Um, yeah, like and follow and subscribe and rate on wherever you're listening. <laughs> Spotify and Apple super helpful, but... I don't have much today uh, outside of regular scheduled programming. I don't have a lot to share. No, I don't think I do either. No. Um, I've just been like up to my elbows no. in this book and research and writing and. Yeah, again, I am just still like barely getting by at work. It's the craziest season right now, so that's all consuming. So no, nothing else is new. All right. Well, let's just get back into it then. So when we left off at the end of our last episode, uh the riot had just kind of begun. Um Billy Knight met with the warden and they basically let the three guards in the gym go they sent the inmates that were being held in the gym back in to join the riot and um that's pretty much where we're at um yeah the shit's about to go down essentially is where we're at we're at that final little like can they come back from this can they take back the prison not looking good yeah so this is still thursday night um and so we're going to move on, basically, from that night. Early on in the riot, there was a group of inmates who they recognized the value of having the hostages alive. Because um, as you can imagine, as this riot went on, there was a lot of different differing opinions 
about how the riot should be handled, how the hostages should be handled and things like that. But there was a group of kind of well-regarded, like, I don't know if you want to call them good cons, but they were like well-respected. Were they like the ones that were like, they committed fraud? Like no, they're lawyers? No, not necessarily. Like... They were just the guys that like, they at this point were pretty well respected by a lot of the other inmates they were well versed in the system they kind of like knew what they needed to do to stay alive and they weren't like running amok and just like causing shit they were yeah these men they designate themselves like the guardians of the hostages from violence and okay they call themselves the inmate police force Though the Guardians of the Galaxy would have been cooler, but... Uh, wait, the what? Inmate Police Force. The IPF? Okay. Yep. Ip. Yes. One of these members we actually talked about in our original Kingston Pen episode when I kind of just, like, laid out what the penitentiary was, and this is inmate number 2778 Wayne Ford. Okay. Wayne was Wayne, come on down. Yeah. So Wayne was a member uh, of the inmate police force. He was serving a life sentence for the murder of his mother, Minnie Ford, on May 16th, Aww. 1963. He was 16 years old at the time he committed the murder. He began a life sentence for the crime in 1966 when the badly decomposed body of his mother was found floating in Lake Cochiching. Wayne was pretty quickly charged with the murder after his mother's body was found, but he was already serving time at Kingston Penn at this point for escaping uh, a reformatory, so they found him pretty quickly. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad they at least got that dealt with. Yeah. Wayne was 6 foot 3 and 285 pounds. He had earned pretty decent respect amongst the inmate population for I bet. a number of reasons he the was known a human being well and like he lifted weights like he was like the gym buff at the prison he yeah i picture like the prison movies or shows where they scan around the yard and there's the guy like bench pressing and correct he up and he's like massive you make eye contact yes. and you're like who's and that? everybody like Stay moves to the side mm-hmm. yes. yeah exactly yeah. okay yeah so luckily he was like I'm going to protect these guards. Like, we can't have any of these people hurt or, like, we're going to be screwed. Like, he's on this this inmate police force. Okay. Yep. Yes. Uh, So when he arrived at Kingston Penn, he was already pretty well established in the criminal justice system. Like, he was – had already been around. And it was already kind of known that if Wayne was messed with, he would retaliate. Um, yeah, you just don't do it. Most of them, people like people either feared him, respected him, or both. <laughs> a little bit of column A, a little bit of column yeah, B. Yeah, I, I was gonna say, I think fear builds a little bit of respect. <laughs> so when his fourth floor cell door was eventually smashed open, Wayne ran down to the dome floor, grabbed a three foot length, two inch pipe, and began running towards one F block, where he knew the guards were being held. He knew that any chance of getting out of the ride alive would be gone if the guards were killed. So yeah. the this one kind of group of inmates, they just recognize that, like, if they hurt one of them, they know that there's people on the other side of those doors that are going to show no mercy. Yeah, the only reason there is the mercy is because, because of them. right, they're alive. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the second they find out they're not, it's like, 
fucking yeah we don't give a shit blow the doors down yeah like they're entertaining negotiations with you right now and that'll end really fast yep Wayne eventually finds the guards huddled in a service corridor behind the G and H ranges. Um, And so by that time, I guess, other inmates that were already freed. Because remember, there's like over 500 inmates and they don't all just like get let out at the same time. Um, They're in shifts, aren't they? Kind of as their cell blocks get opened. Kind of. Like at first... They have a certain number of keys for them, and then eventually something just gets, like, smashed and everybody gets let out. But it's not like it's not like the riot starts and Billy like, Knight, like, presses an, a button and, like, every single person's cell opens. Like, Well, yeah, because you said they got, like, the two open because one was opened by the guards already because they were out. Yes. And they got one, another one open. And then they smashed that thing and, like, four opened. Yes. And then, like, later on, 60 inmates were added to the riot. And yeah. Yeah, they're coming in in, like, these blobs of humans. Yeah, so some people are still, like, locked up when it starts and, like, they can hear yeah. shit going on. They just oh, don't... I think a good percentage. Isn't yeah. there, like, 900 inmates now and there's, like, 400 out right now? No, there. I don't think there's 900. Oh, maybe I'm just... I've been thinking about this a lot. Maybe I've inflated all these numbers. <laughs> No, it only held 564 people, so it would have been around 500. It's like every inmate by the end of it was involved, but yeah, it was about 500. Okay. Okay. My bad. So yeah, by the time Wayne Ford gets there, like other inmates had already kind of jumped on board to do the protecting the hostages job. Um, Luckily, he wasn't the only one that had that on his mind. Thank God. Yeah. So... The inmate police force knew that cell block 1F, where the guards originally were, was, like, way too exposed and that some of the rioting inmates who were, like, less interested in keeping the peace would turn on them and turn on them at, like, any point. Even if they're saying that they're on board with it right now, in five minutes that could change. So they just knew that they needed to be somewhere where nobody knew where they were. So they had been moved to this, like, duct area, basically, behind G and H blocks, but Wayne Ford wanted to move them to an even safer location. So he tells them to not look at anybody and to not run, but to walk normally. And they, like, go all the way up the stairs. They arrive at the fourth floor of B block. And while inmates below were, like, yelling that they should kill them all, um wayne ford basically pushes three guards into one cell and three into another and they had found like a chain and a padlock so that they could Mm. secure the two cell doors closed because all the locking mechanisms are broken at this point they're not everything's just wide open correct and they're not like gonna lock them back in there kind of thing so they pad like they chain and padlock them basically in these two cells three in each in um the fourth floor b block Okay. Makes sense. Yes. Uh, Once the guards were secured in the cells, Wayne Ford then had them remove their uniforms and replace them with inmate uniforms so that they blended in better. So he made them put on like prison outfits um, and basically told them to shut the hell up. Blend in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All of the guards, like so all six guards who had been taken hostage were terrified. Um as that night went on, like, they had no clue what time it was. They had no clue how long it had been since the ride even started. 
Uh, they could just hear like windows getting smashed. And remember, I think last week when we ended off, it was like 11 p.m. on Thursday night. And so yeah, because it was the nighttime like exercise exactly. period was ending. Yeah. yeah. So all of the lighting at this point as this night goes on has oh, been God, smashed out. Lights? No, it's all smashed out. It's just dark. Oh. Nobody can see anything. So, so scary. The hostages, like the hostage guards, couldn't see anything beyond like the inmate police force that was protecting them. Nothing. Jeez. Yeah. I mean, at least they can see that, and that's a little bit of like hope. But God, that would be terrifying. Because yeah, I, you know how much scarier anything is when you're laying in bed at night and you hear a noise. You're like, oh my God. Yeah. So I could only imagine being in that situation and hearing everything around you just like smashing and yelling and people hooting and hollering and whatever. Like, Oh, yeah. They were running amok. There's like a group of them getting drunk off homebrew. Like, Well, keep in mind, these people, like these guards now are sitting in there, no food, no water, Mm -hmm. high adrenaline, probably sweating a bunch. Like they're probably not in their like strongest, best state of mind either. So this would be so hard. No. And... Uh, senior guard Ed Barrett, who we talked about, was he didn't say anything to the other guards, but at that point, like he knew he had a heart problem, and so he wasn't even sure he would survive the riot. Um, I thought you were gonna say he was like diabetic or something. No, that that will come up. Not the guards though, but the the diabetic and the medication and stuff. We'll definitely get there because oh, okay. you're right. Like. Where are they getting food and water and medication yeah. if this is going to last longer than, you know, a couple of hours? Like there's always this plan of this, like, chaotic takedown, but no one plans, okay, once it's taken down, this group, go break into the kitchen. You're in charge of food. You're in charge of bedding. You're in charge of this. You're in charge of, like, the prison still has to run for people to be in it. Yeah. That's so crazy. Yeah. Carrie Bushel, who was the youngest guard, and he was the newest of the group, Um, he was in there for the night and was praying silently. It was his 25th birthday, sorry, the next day. And so, and he had a young child. So he was just hoping that he would be able to make it home to his wife and baby for his birthday. Um, yeah. So these guards were, they were just scared. I don't blame them. So there was another vulnerable group of people recognized by, some of the inmates as they would need protection during the riot um and i think elderly sick no uh in the book and i'm gonna refer to them at the this group of people as this going forward because in the book that i read for this case um catherine fogarty refers to them as undesirables Oh, okay. I so like this is sex offenders like and sex offenders, informants, yeah. those kind of inmates. Um, so these inmates were being held in cell block 1D. There was 14 inmates held in 1D, and they had absolutely no interest in being released. They were like, no, thank you. We're good. Please leave us locked up. Like, we know what's on the other side of that. Let and us just wait this out. We're we good. Are. Yeah. yeah. We'll be sitting ducks. That's okay. Um, they they essentially knew that if they were let out of their cells, that they would die. Without a doubt. That's how dangerous it was for these people to be in general population. Um, with guards. With like, guards. Yeah. This, that's with supervision and yeah, order. Yeah. This group of inmates... Um, 
they had their own workshop. They had their own exercise yard. Uh, they spent less time in their cells. They ate alone. Like they didn't spend any time with the general population whatsoever. They were segregation as we know it. Um, but I, I liked that's like kind of a cushy segregation. Well, not necessarily. They have to spend more time in their cells. They they just oh, they said less time. In no, their no, cells. no. They spend like, more oh. time in their cells. They eat alone so they don't die at lunch. Like yeah, fair, I it's guess. you know it's for their own protection. But um, oh, amongst the inmates held in D block, uh, child molesters specifically ranked the very lowest. Um, so yeah, there's just a group of inmates that knew and other inmates as well knew that if they were unprotected or they were let out, they, it would not go well. Um, and violence against other inmates, they also recognized would be bad for them. Like as soon as the outside administration finds out that we're harming each other, they're also just going to bust in here. Yeah, because there's no longer a collective union doing it for our cause. A hundred percent. Yeah. Now, not all of the inmates that were in 1D fit the description of quote-unquote an undesirable. Um, one young inmate, for example, had actually requested to be sent to this range because he had refused sexual advances from another older inmate, and because of this, he had his life threatened. Um, in... The general prison population, rape is well known to not be tolerated. However, it's common for some of the younger, weaker inmates to get bullied into it. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to say bullied into consent because I still don't believe that that's consent. No. But it's like you do it or I'll kill you. And or if you blackmailed, yeah, exactly. Um, and so he had actually been at, he had he had asked to be sent to segregation just so that he could get away from that. That's so sad. Yeah, this place was pretty rough. And at this time, like I think I mentioned it in the last episode, the warden called it a ticking time bomb. Like between the treatment yeah. of the guards to the inmates and this kind of um relationship that the inmates had between each other like there was just a lot boiling there's a lot happening yeah. here early on there were certain inmates who immediately had block 1d in mind as a target so there's this group of inmates who want to protect the undesirables and want to protect the hostages yeah. and we all know that on the other side we have the inmates who as soon as the riot starts are like where are they? Let's get Let's that fucking go. Come. Exactly. Yeah. Like, it's awful, but that's, that's all they see. That's the yeah. way it, it was. Brian Bocage was a 23-year-old inmate from London, Ontario, who was serving an eight-year sentence for manslaughter. He had recently returned to Kingston, Penn, after attacking a prison instructor with a sledgehammer at Collins Bay. An early intake of Brian reported, quote, Bocage is an intelligent person who resorts to assaultive, aggressive behavior without much remorse or provocation. So that's terrifying. Yeah, that part's really scary. Yes. Brian had befriended a younger inmate, 17-year-old Robbie Robidoux. Robbie had been in the system since the age of seven, starting in group homes, ending up in training schools, and then reformatories um, and eventually institutions, 100%. 
Uh, Robbie was raised in the system and learned how to survive, saying, quote, if you didn't fight, you were dead. Billy Knight, at this point, had the keys to 1D, so he was obviously on the side of, like, we need to protect them because we need to take them, the outside, to take us seriously. So he had the keys to 1D, knowing full well that the undesirables were in danger. He told them to hide under their beds and reiterated to the inmates in the dome that any violence or assault on any inmate or hostage would be detrimental to everything they were fighting for. So he's really trying to keep it together. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, he started it, but he's trying to keep it together. Now, yeah, he's trying to keep it for the right reasons, at least, so... For now. Yeah. For now. Not exactly peaceful protest, but, you know. Yeah, Billy... Billy has good intentions, I want to believe, in the beginning, though... Remember how I said he was writing a book? Yeah. Wayne Ford, like, later goes on to say that basically, like, a juicy riot was the one thing Billy's book was missing... So he, like, thinks that Aww. part of this was kind of, like, just to inflate his own ego and add something to his book. But he just started it and was like, okay, I got what I needed, so. Not necessarily. I just feel like his intentions come off good at the beginning, and you'll see throughout the next two episodes that, like, it just kind of goes south. It doesn't, it doesn't okay. materialize <laughs> the way that it should. Okay. Yeah. So while Cell Block 1D was not being watched, so somebody turned their back and the the 1D block was left wide open, an inmate by the name of James Ball was an easy target in Block D because he had just, like, talked back and insulted some inmates a couple days okay. prior on, like, tiers above him. So he just had the most recent beef? Well, the undesirables were not to talk back to the general population. They were not to disrespect Uh, them. There was a prison hierarchy and they were to follow it. And so he basically disrespected somebody in Gen Pop. And so they, he was just an early, an easy target. Like they had him on the brain because it was so recent. Yeah. James Ball was dragged out from under his cot and the inmates called him a rat and a stool pigeon, uh, which is an informant and began beating him. After the attack on James Ball, another group of inmates pulled a fire hose through a barrier at the end of the range and began spraying it into the cells of the other undesirables. So James Ball was attacked multiple times and Billy Knight heard the screams coming from 1D. So he ran up and tried to stop the attack and he found James lying in a huge pool of his own blood and he had actually slit his wrists trying to take his own life rather than be beaten a third time i don't blame him so billy i know and so billy rushes to the phone in the dome he calls the prison hospital and he tells them that there was an inmate bleeding to death He then calls the prison administration building, demands to speak to the warden, and the warden authorizes two inmates to carry James Ball out of 1D and bring him to the hospital in the East Wing cell block. So they're allowed to, like, bring him. No reprimand. You're good. Just two inmates unable to go back. Please. No, they came back. No, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Drop him off and just come back. And just return to your peaceful protest. Exactly. Yeah. So that's super, super sad. Um... I will say that those 
kind of stories don't really slow down throughout the riot. It's there's just a lot of violence and a lot of stuff that happens. But that's why we're here over four hours together. Uh, so just like not all of the inmates in 1D were sex offenders or informants, some sex offenders were also not in protective custody. Um, so sp- yeah. specifically, 26-year-old Brian Enser, who was inmate number 9370, was serving time for assaulting two young girls in Hamilton, Ontario. At his trial, two psychiatrists testified that Brian had a below normal intelligence and was unable to control his sexual impulses. In their opinion, if he were allowed to remain free, Brian would very likely reoffend. Mm-hmm. Brian refused to be housed in protective custody. So this is something that was suggested to him, but he was just like, absolutely no. Um, I think it's because of the kind of stigma that comes along with it and maybe he was thinking that he can just like make himself blend in and get by in general population he just was like absolutely not i will not be considered he could just say he did something else or he's there for something else yeah i don't i feel like i feel like you can't get away with that like i don't know i feel like it's like a small town where everybody knows everyone and everything and like room i don't know i guess so right that's that's how that's what i think um potentially yeah. yeah But people don't always get housed at prisons close by. True. Brian Enser worked in the machine shop and kept a low profile. He had survived several beatings and a stabbing in the arm already. However, um, he knew, even though he was not housed in protective custody, he wasn't in 1D, he still knew that the other inmates knew things and felt a certain way about him. And so now that the Mm -hmm. riot had started, he knew that if something was to go wrong, he would be a target. Yeah, he would be like an example used. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like that last guy. Yeah. Brian Enser was hiding in his cell on the fourth tier of E block when two larger inmates appeared with metal pipes. Brian was dragged out of his cell into the corridor towards the railings, um, and he was like kicking and screaming trying to get away. The attackers tried to throw Brian over the metal railing, and... He refused to let go. Like, one of the, these inmates was literally biting and kicking at his fingers to release his grip, and he held on, would not let go. Oh. Um, so they eventually gave up and, like, dropped him to the floor where they were and just beat the shit out of him. But didn't kill him? No. Okay. Not now. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Not right now. There's no death. I did tell you at the beginning of the last episode that there would be some. Wait. Well, the other guy died. Okay. He slid his wrists. No, he didn't die. Oh, he was just, I didn't. He think was taken they to the. Him. No, he was taken to the hospital. He survived. He didn't die. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear that. He's still alive, but there will. You made it sound really. There boom, will boom, be. Boom. Well, I mean, it's dark either way. It's. I mean, it's terrible. But yeah, no, he, it is. He did survive. Um, Oh, no, I know there's going to be murder. There will be murder for sure. Yeah. So, no. uh, So, Brian gets beat up here, um, but he survives this attack. Billy and another inmate, Barry McKenzie. So, this is all going on Thursday night. Thursday night? Oh. No, sorry. 
throughout the night Wednesday because it's Wednesday night that the riot starts. So it's throughout yeah, like the, 11 p.m. Yes, so on still... Wednesday the 14th. Oh, so gosh. this is literally just through the night. We're not even at Thursday yet. This is all occurring overnight. Okay. So Billy and uh, another inmate, Barry McKenzie, they had been planning an early morning meeting for Thursday morning. So in the morning when they get word of the attempt to try to kill Brian Enser. They find Brian Enser. He had been badly beaten. His eyes were swollen shut and his face was bleeding from several deep cuts. Billy knew he had to move Brian or he would be killed. Um, but Brian once again refused to be locked up in 1D because he knew they were like already a target. But Billy and Barry dragged him literally down three flights of stairs and locked him in there anyways. Oh, jeez. Yeah, they are like, yeah. sorry, I don't really care what you want anymore for your own good. We need to lock you up. Because remember, like, he can go sit in a cell all he wants, but none of them are locking. So yeah. um, at least here they have this padlock and the chain. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they, they drag him down to the first floor and they lock him up with the rest of the undesirables. Okay. Barry McKenzie was inmate number 5106. He was serving time for robbery and assault on a prison guard. Barry was originally from Hamilton, Ontario, but had lived in 14 foster homes as a kid before eventually being caught. Uh, He got caught for stealing and he was sent to a reformatory. Barry escaped from Halton County Jail in Milton, Ontario in 1968 uh, before beating a guard on unconscious, unconscious, sorry, with another inmate's crutch, literally beat somebody up. What the fuck? With a crutch. Um, oh my god. Okay. Yeah, he was captured half an hour later. That's Good. a little bit about Barry. <laughs> but actually, throughout these, the rest of the riot, Barry really steps up to the plate and becomes. Oh, so we don't kind of like a voice shame him so much. Barry takes over when Billy kind of loses the plot. So Barry is very much credited with being a part of the reason that this ended um, the way that it did. Step up. Yeah. So, yeah, we we, I want I want to say we like Barry. He's still done awful things in his life, but he he was a good player in this anyways. Okay. Okay. Billy Knight called an immediate assembly of the inmates in the main dome area and reminded them that the attack on Brian Enser was exactly the kind of thing that they did not want to happen. He told them it made them look like animals and that it was going to seriously damage their chances of negotiation with the administration. Heck, yes, it is. Yeah. So by Thursday morning, April 15th, the prison was silent. It was like, it's like, you know, chaos ensues and then everyone's just tired. Like it was like, yeah, everyone's exhausted. They got to recharge. The adrenaline had worn off. Like shit had just hit the fan all night. I'm sure that like we should have taken shifts. Well, like the inmates <laughs> who were drinking homebrew all night were probably hung over like, oh, just puking their guts out. Yeah. So many of the inmates at this point had actually returned to their cells like, they not like, never mind i'm gonna go just like doors open i gotta go to bed i yeah or like close their doors scared i mean a lot of i feel like with in but a they group didn't lock anyway in so a group this size though i feel like so many of these inmates were probably terrified 
He's like, I'm going to go to my cell. It's safer there. Like, people would actually have to come find me. I'm going to go have a nap. Like, chill out. But they'd know exactly where you were. So is it safer if the door doesn't lock? If you're kind of somebody that nobody's looking for. Yeah. It's a huge prison. If you could just, like, go unnoticed. I'm sure lots of people just went about their business. and. Oh, yeah. Right? Uh, many of the inmates were also huddled around like small fires that they had made to try and stay warm because again, all the windows were smashed out. So it's freezing. Uh, it's yeah, April it's in Ontario. It's, it's cold. There's no insulation now. It's a big concrete building. Yeah. And so as the sun starts to come up, like they can see how much damage they've done. Um, their kind of reality of the situation that they were in is hitting and, like anything that could be destroyed was the walkways along the cells were covered in smashed furniture, torn mattresses, bed springs, plumbing fixtures. Uh, early in the morning, like really late early morning Thursday, all, all of the religious chapels were destroyed. Um, somebody pushed the church organ over the top tier and it smashed on the dome floor. Uh yeah oh my god it was a mess that is intense yeah so this in the morning on thursday uh now that everything's sort of like i want to say calmed down but they're in this kind of lull period billy knight's recognizing that like this might last a little longer than he bargained for i don't know shocker if he thought that the administration was just gonna like give in and give them what they wanted right away but he's like, huh, like, I might need food and water. And, like, some of the people here are like toiletries, diabetic medication. and need medication or other medications, not just for insulin. But he's like, huh, like, this, this, I might need to figure something out. So he calls the warden and he literally demands food, coffee, and medication. He's like, we need it. Give it to me. Warden Jarvis is like, no. Same thing. Warden Jarvis is hoping that, like, if he just says hard, him out. hard no, that he's going to be able to get this standoff well, to end, basically. He's just cave. Yeah. So Billy refuses and threatens the safety of the six guards, because uh, this is what they're using right now to get whatever they want, right? So Warden Jarvis does agree to send coffee and medication. However... As an act of good faith, the warden requests to speak with one of the kidnapped guards. Um, and the inmates okay. refused to take anybody to where the guards were because they didn't want anybody to know where they were, including the other inmates. So, mm. like, where they were being kept was kind of a secret. And then anybody that did find them, there was, like, the inmate police force surrounding the top of that yeah. block. So they couldn't even get by. Um but so senior guard Ed Barrett is summoned from the cell. They blindfold him. He has no idea where he's going. So he probably just thinks he's getting killed because um, they're like, yeah. come with me, put a blindfold on him. They want to use him against the other hostages or something like, yeah, I would have felt the worst. He just thinks something awful is happening and that he's about to lose his life. Um, but he is actually handed a telephone and asked to identify himself. So. He hears a female voice and he recognizes it as his wife's. Oh. I know. And his wife is like on the other end of the phone 
like crying, saying he's lying and that the person wasn't really Ed and that they had killed her husband. And so Ed Barrett replies to his wife saying that it was really him. And he says they had just painted their daughter's room blue and that there was a giraffe standing in it. Um, And so she screams out, my husband's alive. And then the warden like takes the phone back and Ed basically tells him that the hostages are unharmed, but he does tell them that he believes that that could change if the inmates' demands are not met. Mm-hmm. Billy Knight takes the phone back and basically tells the warden to think about what you've just heard. Um, and he also demands that the army officers surrounding the prison be removed as they were, quote, too close. Then he hung up the phone. Um, like Billy Knight thinks they're he's, fine. Oh, and like he thinks he's running the show right now. His head is very inflated. He's a turd. Mm-hmm, yes, huge turd. He's like thinking this prison is like his empire all of a sudden. Uh huh. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That that's what I mean when I say like I think originally his intentions were good, and then like the execution just kind of went off the rails. Got away with him. Yeah, it really did. Cause like at the end of the phone call, being like those guards are too close, move them. Like, bro. At work, I, I have someone like this. I'm not going to say if it's a, like an employee or a coworker, but they always slide little lines like that in. Get out of here. And oh, God, it irks so many of us. Mm, I'm sure it does. All right. Just after 11 a.m. on the morning of April 15th, so we're on Thursday, a news reporter for CKLC who was familiar with Kingston Pen because he had covered stories on it before. His name was Jerry Retzer. He is covering the morning news that day, and he receives a phone call. He's just literally doing morning news at a news, like, radio station and gets a phone call. Okay. This call is from inside Kingston Penitentiary, and he hears an unfamiliar voice that says they had taken hostages. So Billy Knight calls the news. The man on the phone, obviously, we know is Billy Knight, and he continues to tell Retzer that the inmates were upset about a number of things and that they wanted to hold a news conference with TV cameras and tape recorders. (laughs) The phone is then passed to another inmate, inmate number 7136, Manny Lester. Manny Lester was a 45-year-old American stockbroker who was serving time for fraud. Lester told Retzer that he had been elected by the inmates to be their legal advisor. He informed Retzer that a newly elected inmates committee wanted to meet with a citizens committee so that the prisoners could present their grievances. So they literally demand a long list of like very prominent citizens in the media in like political and legal circles. Um, They also tell them that they would like Paul Newman, Mickey Rooney and Muhammad Ali to be the audacity to hear their grievances. Um. Mm-hmm. Other now granted, don't get me wrong. I get that their conditions were shite. They were. It's just. Do they need all those people? It's a bit much. No, no, I I totally agree with you. This it it gets really out of hand. Um. Clearly. And this is real. Like just so everyone, everyone, we all know we cover true crime and history on this show. Like this is not a movie. It should be, but it's not. Um. 
So other inmates, or sorry, other names on the inmates like demand list for people that needed to be on the citizens committee to hear their grievances were a Toronto Telegram columnist named Ron Haggart, a civil liberties lawyer named Alan Borovoy, and a Toronto lawyer named Arthur Martin. Um, okay. So Jerry Retzer is like, what just happened? <laughs> Hangs up the phone at the news station and just immediately drives to the penitentiary. As would I. Right? Like, you're like, what the fuck? So he drives there. I gotta see for myself. He's refused at the door. He calls his bosses and tells them what's going on. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. You go back there and you keep knocking until they let you in. (laughs) So he's eventually let in. And by this point, it's like midday Thursday. News had already started to spread on the outside about what was going on inside the penitentiary. Um. So Billy Knight was succeeding in getting his mission out, but he was going to have to try and keep these inmates under control if this message was going to have any meaning because it's all fun and games. Again, it's hard to take them serious when they're raging lunatics in the background. Right. So it, it really didn't take Billy Knight very long for him to get his press conference, though. By the late morning, uh, Thursday, April 15th, eight men were sitting in a boardroom in the prison hospital, including uh, William Baird, who's known in the news as Bill Baird, and Sheldon McNeil from the Whig Standard newspaper, Jerry Retzer of CKLC Radio, Henry Champ from CTV News Toronto, and Graham Cox from the Canadian Press Wire Service. So they basically got anybody who would come on, like, short notice. Jeez. Yeah. Also in this... Yeah. Also in this press conference was Regional Director of Penitentiaries John Maloney, Warden Arthur Jarvis, and Acting Deputy Warden Douglas Chinnery. Now, you might be wondering, the biggest penitentiary in Canada... 500 inmates riding and it's the prison is shut down and there's six hostages taken where's the prime minister at a little bit well i'm scared prime minister trudeau senior was on his honeymoon with margaret yeah oh my god Mm -hmm. so he was not available um That is crazy. Yeah. Her name's Margaret, right? Yeah. I think so. They were on their honeymoon, and this is the (laughs) 70s, so you can't text him. Um, I don't know. Maybe you could phone, but he never never made it back for this event. (laughs) And by event, I mean huge as prison riot in Canadian history. There's no way the inmates would have known that. That's just such a flute. No. Yeah. He like had literally just gone on his honeymoon, was not available. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. The inmate committee representatives for this first press conference. So this is Billy Knight, an inmate named Charles Saunders and Manny Lester. They were 15 minutes late and they were dressed in their blue denim like inmate uniforms However, this makes me chuckle. Manny Lester, who was like the designated legal advisor of the inmates or whatever, uh, he added a black blazer to his blue-gray denim inmate <laughs> jumpsuit. Okay, that is cute. <laughs> I can't help. Just to stand out a little bit. It's like 
a groom and groomsman. It was the comic relief I needed when I was researching this Without and like reading doubt. this book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Billy Knight, they recognized at this point as like the obvious leader of this group. And he basically just started by informing the reporters and the officials that the prisoners were protesting against the treatment and inhumanity they faced on a daily basis. They said their actions were supposed to represent a peaceful protest by a group of oppressed individuals who felt ignored and forgotten by society. Billy Knight told the group, quote, we're sick of being zombies. This is our last ditch stand against the inhumanities the prisoners will face upon a forced transfer to Millhaven. He also stated that they were rioting against the brutality they faced from the guards and that they wanted to address their grievances before they were all forced to move to the new prison where they felt their treatment and living conditions would be worse. Okay. We we knew all that, at least. We knew that, yeah. And they kind of knew that, but he wanted the, the... press and the public and everybody to know that right like we know that now but at the time i don't nobody really know knew what was going on billy knight went on to tell the citizens committee that he had 100 percent support for the riot amongst the inmate population and that they wanted immediate penal reform uh The warden was, like, just starting to get frustrated by how Billy Knight was, like, boasting about how they wanted a peaceful protest and they wanted this and they wanted this. Um, Well, and he's like, you literally threatened to cut their fingers off. Because remember last episode. about this is peaceful. Right. And you're not sitting on the floor listening to music quietly saying we are not coming out until you do X, Y, and Z. Correct. That's a peaceful protest. Mm -hmm. Correct. Uh, Do you know what Knight replied, though? Like, what, what Billy said? Well, Billy... I don't know. I don't even think I can muster up a a Billy. Old Billy. He replies with, we could chop off heads instead of fingers. Oh, God. Bro, that's (laughs) the exact opposite direction you should be going. I'm only laughing because I find this guy to be so outlandish. Like, I know it's not funny and that he incited this riot. he is outlandish. He's so outlandish. Like, I just can't take him seriously. Oh, he's so over the top. Yeah. So Billy like lays out all these demands and tells the prison officials and the press all this. And before anybody even has a chance to say anything, Manny Lester goes, oh, I've written down these five demands and the inmate committee will not be answering any more questions. And just like hands them a piece of paper with demands on it. And they're like, okay, bye. Did they actually all know what was written down? Like the three of them? Yeah. Yeah. So the, fir- oh, okay. the first demand was the need for food and control of the kitchen. Um, so the prison employees, remember the they were in there and they like shot at the window when the prisoners were trying to come in the kitchen. So the prison still technically had control of the kitchen. So oh. um, they wanted control Is of the, the kitchen. still in there? Yeah. There's still staff. Oh, okay. So they're like on lockdown in there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the prison still employees still controlled the kitchen. Um and the inmates had no access to food, so that the first demand was for food and control of the kitchen. The second demand was for any medication needed by any inmate or hostage. The third demand was the request for a citizen committee to, quote, negotiate a peaceful settlement. Um, the note also stated, so number four, 
just stated that the inmates felt they were unable to get through to the prison administration and that at least four of the people that they had originally asked for would need to be present before they would sit for any further negotiations. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, Sorry. The fourth point was to advise that the inmate committee was selected by all of the inmates. So they're just like stating that they're all in agreement of who the inmate committee is. And the fifth point stated, quote. Trying to prove that they're like legit because they were voted in. I guess. I guess. Okay. Uh, the, the fifth point stated, quote, if any guards try and force their way into the dome from any place, they will do so at the peril of the hostages. We do not wish to harm anyone. Only our desire now is to be heard. Okay. But you're constantly offering up dishes of fear mm-hmm. and yep. physical violence. Yeah. So in total, this meeting, this little conference they have lasts 17 minutes. Regional director John Maloney was not a fan whatsoever at how the inmates were attempting to use the media. Um, he basically just told the inmates that their demands would be considered and then he left the room. He was like, I'm, I'm done with this. Sounds like customer service. I'll look into that for you. Yeah, exactly. Bye. Late Thursday afternoon, Billy Knight announces to the inmates that a TV reporter from Toronto would be coming to talk to the hostages and report on the situation inside. Um, So Henry Champ, who was a news director for CTV in Toronto, um, attends the first press conference and then basically immediately volunteers to go inside and report on what's happening inside because nobody really knows what's going on in there except for the inmates they like there's a lot of rumors that'll like you know start to rumble about what's happening inside there but nobody's actually knows that nobody's even the hostages and the kitchen people don't know because they're sitting in one spot well they're telling them the hostages are fine but like and they've talked to somebody on the phone but like nobody's seen inside of this place at this point so yeah henry champ he walks through the penitentiary, the main dome, he speaks with many inmates who expressed that they did want the riot to end peacefully. Um, Henry Champ asks to see the hostage and Billy Knight again said he would not take them to where they were being kept, but that he would bring one down to meet him inside the radio room. Um, so again, the inmate police force just didn't want the rest of the inmates or anyone to know where they were. Ed Barrett was once again chosen by Billy as the hostage representative. He arrived in the radio room blindfolded. His hands were tied behind his back, and he told the reporter that he and the others were being treated well and that they had not been harmed. Okay. Henry Champ was inside Kingston Pen for two hours on Thursday afternoon. He left and told prison administrators that being in there had been like being in, in a school without teachers. He also said... That sounds like a great way to explain it. A hundred percent. Like, this feels like I am in a high school and there's no teachers. Or like an elementary school Mm -hmm. with no teachers at that point. Like people skateboarding in the halls, paper airplanes everywhere, gum. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Henry also told the prison administrators that the inmates were well organized and that they, quote, obviously meant business. (laughs) Okay. 
By 5 p.m. on Thursday, April 15th, three men had arrived at Kingston Pen from Toronto to be part of the newly formed Citizens Committee the prisoners had requested. These three men were Professor J. Desmond Morton, Ron Haggart, uh, who was the columnist from the Toronto Telegram, uh, Aubrey Golden, who was friends with Ron Haggart and was a barrister and solicitor, um, and he had extensive experience in labor relations and mediation. Oh, this, they can maybe help the standoff get broken? Potentially. <laughs> he can help in, like, they need all the help they can get at this point. The Citizens Committee had no authority to actually hold the administration or the government. Like, they couldn't promise anything they couldn't hold the government to any kind of like settlement but they could use their best judgment to do like everything reasonably possible to bring this riot to a quick and peaceful end they were trying to mitigate loss of life and injury to the guards and the prisoners like they couldn't promise anything to the prisoners, but they could hopefully help in getting this resolution Indeed. over with because they obviously don't trust the prison administration. No, why would they? No, like, that's not going to be the people they want to air their grievances to because they don't think they give a shit about them anyways. Well, and they don't. And they don't. You're right. So... The Citizens Committee, the new Citizens Committee members met with Billy Knight and Manny Lester where they were told that all the men wanted was a, quote, fair hearing and investigation of their grievances. Uh, Warden Jarvis was starting to recognize that this was not going to end quickly and that he couldn't really just use the hell no on them for everything. Um and so he made the decision to tell the inmates that they would receive sandwiches and milk, but only if the hostages were given their fair share. So he gives in to the food. Okay. This makes Billy quite happy. He feels like the administration is starting to take them seriously, and food was delivered to the inmates within an hour. Uh, a lot of sandwiches. And... Billy also, because of this, starts to gain a little bit of credibility among the inmate population. Like, he's delivering yeah. the things that he said that he would deliver. Mm -hmm. So the prisoners form a food committee um, to, like, be in charge of the distribution of the sandwiches, make sure that everybody gets a fair share, etc. And in charge of this food committee, they make... Inmate number 6657, Dave Shepley, uh, like the main guy. Dave Shepley had spent a number of stints in and out of prison, and so he had kind of developed a reputation of being a strong leader and had respect for the other inmates. And, like, he was usually a pretty jovial guy. Okay. Dave Shepley is monitoring the sandwich line to ensure that nobody takes more than one sandwich. Um, he sees one of the other inmates in line for a second time and refuses him. This guy tells him that he's just getting a sandwich for his friend who was still passed out, which like we've all tried to do that before, but it, sometimes they have to get it for themselves. Uh, so Dave Shepley says... Wake up your friend. Yeah, like, no, I, I can't do that. He has to get his own sandwich. There's no um, exceptions. And this inmate sucker punches Dave Shepley in the jaw and fractures his jaw in two places. Oh, <gasps> a dick. Yeah. 
And so with the warden's permission, Dave Shepley is sent to the hospital. Um, and the prison doctor recommends that he stay in the hospital, but he like wanted to go back to the riot. I don't think anybody would have wanted to be staying in the hospital at this point. He wants to go back, but when Dave Shepley returns to the riot, to the dome area, everybody agrees that there's like a noticeable shift in his demeanor. Um, It was kind of hard to tell if it was like the riot or the sucker punch or both or like what, but he was just like pissed off now. He was angry. Um, He was usually like a pretty sociable guy and he just was obviously affected by this incident so his demeanor entirely changes and that will come back okay the first official citizens meeting is held in the hospital treatment room on thursday uh, at 9 p.m so we're on thursday night now Two other men, Arthur Martin and William R. Donkin, had joined Aubrey Golden, Desmond Morton, and Ron Haggart as the official five members of the Citizens Committee. Martin was considered a top criminal lawyer in Canada who was an advocate for legal reform, and Donkin, a barrister and solicitor and the director of legal aid in York County in Ontario. Both of those men had originally been requested by the inmates to join the committee. So oh, wow. Arthur okay. Martin. So some heavy hitters. W- William Donkin, Ron Haggart, and I b- believe Aubrey Golden were like, because they remember they said they wouldn't sit down with them until they had four people that they had originally asked for. I believe those were the four. Okay. Billy Knight, Charles Saunders, and Manny Lester were joined by Barry McKenzie this time and another inmate, Norman McCod, as forming the official five members of the inmate committee. Norman McCod was inmate number 7622 and had been in and out of prison since participating in a grocery store robbery in 1957. McCod was considered well-read and opinionated and had previously written a 30,000-word brief to the Parliamentary Committee on Penitentiaries in 1967 detailing his experiences at Kingston Pen and what he believed was wrong with prison life. Okay, so someone's speaking up. And, like, there's a few guys here who are passionate about this topic. Like, they're... they're Trying to make a difference. They're trying to make real change for the people that come in the system after them as well as themselves. Um, So, yeah, I don't think that this riot... It wasn't all ill-intentioned. I will continue to just say that the execution just wasn't great. Okay. During this first meeting, uh, the Citizens Committee requested that no prison officials be present. So it's just the inmates and the citizens. Um, The initial complaints in this meeting were toward the administration of the criminal justice system in general, which is kind of why I said that, like, the reasons for the riot starts to go a bit off the rails. And while I understand that inmates are probably frustrated with the criminal justice system as a whole and i and i'm not trying to take that away from them um i think when you're trying to make a point you got to stick to it because mm-hmm. they're complaining about like how the courts operated the police yeah you can't blur all the lines the of what sentencing process like they're just complaining about the system which i think takes away from your main purpose which is your yeah. treatment and your humanity in 
behind bars. Um, that's just my opinion, though. Oh, I agree. The second list of grievances related to the administration of the penitentiary system in general, including the handling of Kingston Pen. Um, they spoke a lot about like mass punishments where the bad conduct of like only a few inmates would mean mass punishment for everyone. Um, it ha that happened a lot. So like if a couple That's people crazy. behaved out of line, like everybody got put on lockdown or like everybody had certain privileges taken away. And they expect people not to beat the shit out of each other. Like exactly. God. And so, yeah, this is where we kind of get into sort of the deeper reasons of why this is happening. It's not just that they're mm -hmm. getting poorly treated by guards. It's like none of these rules make sense. Um, no. And again, it comes back to the humanity of it, right? They're just treating them all like circus animals. Yeah, it's disgusting. So they're behaving like it. At the end of this first official meeting, the Citizens Committee was handed yet again another list of demands from the inmates that they stated would need to be met in order for the protest to end. This list included signed assurance from the commissioner of penitentiaries that no charges would be laid against any of the prisoners for their actions during the riot. So full immunity from prosecution. No. Right. That was my and everyone else's initial thought. The second demand was that they be returned to their cells under the watch of the citizens committee uh, that their grievances be presented to the administration with the Citizens Committee present at a meeting to occur on Friday, April 16th at noon. That the Citizens Committee observe the transfer of inmates to Millhaven. That prisoners not be transferred outside of Ontario. Again, I'm not sure you can really ask for that. And priority... Yeah, that one's kind of weird. Yeah. Priority in all transfers to be given to younger prisoners who would be transferred first. Um, and finally, for Millhaven to be visited and observed by both the inmates and the Citizens Committee under appropriate security. So basically, they wanted a tour uh, before they were moved. Uh, I think the committee could do a tour and report back, but I don't think the inmates need to. I think that some of those are reasonable and most of yeah. them are not. That's how I feel. I agree. Um, yeah, I agree. Again, the Citizens Committee can't make any promises, uh, but they listened and they told the inmate committee that if any harm came to a single one of the hostages, those responsible would be fully prosecuted. Um this meeting ends just before midnight, and the warden agreed with both committees that they would reconvene the next morning at 9 a.m. So they're like, great. Inmate committee is leaving this hospital. to make a movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so they return to the prison like the, the inmate committee does. They go back to the dome to, to see everybody. They had planned to call a general meeting with the inmate population to advise them of the progress being made with yeah. the citizens committee um instead they just return to inmates freaking the fuck out panicking smashing anything that had already not been destroyed lighting fires like there it's chaos once like again full-blown riot full-blown riot all over again um and it, it turns out unbeknownst to the inmate or the citizens committee while they were in this meeting working on these peaceful negotiations, 
uh, Warden Jarvis initiated 130 more troops from the Canadian Forces Base in Kingston and Camp Petawawa. They had, like, fixed bayonets, automatic rifles, tear gas, canisters, and they were marching in double formation past the main gates and straight on to the prison grounds. Yeah. So Billy once again recognizes that he is now in for another very long night, potentially a much longer riot than he had originally bargained for. He's going to lose a ton of credibility with the rest of the inmates And, like, what is he supposed to say to them now that he was supposed to be coming back and being like, oh, we're we're all good. Um, and as one prison guard who was not a hostage left to go home for some shut-eye that night, he told one of the soldiers, quote, make one mistake and you'll be bringing six stiffs out of there. So that's part two. That is so scary sounding yeah (laughs) like no pressure yeah so that's where we're at with the end of part two when we return for part three it's gonna be friday morning um yeah we're gonna kind of find out where do we go next with the citizens committee with these negotiations um We have a lot to get through. So it is going to be four parts because part three is really going to be like Friday and Saturday. And then part four is going to be kind of everything that happens after the fact. Um, I will tell you now this riot lasts five days. So it's really not over until like Sunday, Saturday night, Sunday. It's a five day long riot. Um, and we're at Thursday. We're only on Thursday night. It's like midnight going into Friday. This has been two oh, days. God. I'm exhausted for them. Mm-hmm. Just the adrenaline pumping. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So well, yeah, I hope you. everybody liked part two. Um, it's it's a little bit repetitive in terms of just like the the reasons why they're upset but it's a really main theme of this and it's the whole purpose that this happened so it's important to worth driving home kind of harp on that and yeah i mean it is what it is um but yeah that's part two so we'll be back in a few days for part three which i am done um so katie and i can record it whenever but i do need to finish writing part four as well uh but yeah i Thank you for, again, the love on these, like, series episodes. They are definitely different style, and I enjoy writing them. So if you like them, I actually put a poll up like on Instagram them. today. Check it out. I like them. Um, yeah, follow us at Podcast by Proxy, wherever you social media, and give us a five-star rating and review wherever you're listening. And that is all you need to do to support us. Mm-hmm. That's it. Case suggestions, though, if you got any, shoot them over to podcastbyproxy at gmail.com. Yes. If you're on Vancouver Island, please check out the Instagram page. Please bring me home. Um, They do, like, anonymous tips and investigations for missing persons across Canada, but they're actually looking right now for volunteers to recruit to search the Campbell River area for missing male jordan hauling we have not 
covered this case. Um, True Not True Crime did cover it as one of their original episodes, but Jordan went missing on October 16th, 2017 from Campbell River, British Columbia, which is here on Vancouver Island. He was walking home from his friend's house and was last seen on surveillance footage near Highway 19 and 14th Ave. But this Please Bring Me Home um, organization is looking for volunteers. If you're interested in volunteering to look for Jordan, you would have to be available from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. on this search date, which they haven't even determined yet. It'll be sometime in July or August. But the email is pleasebringmehome at outlook.com. Um, so if that's something you're interested in being involved in, then send them an email and give them your full name, phone number, and emergency contact name and number. Um, but yeah, they're looking for search volunteers. So if you're local, check that out. Yeah, definitely. I didn't know about this, so I just quickly typed it in as well. So It's wild the amount of cases that every time I hear about something, I'm like, oh, I've never heard of that. Like, it's just, I feel no, like it's just either. getting... I want to say worse because it's bad every time somebody goes missing or is murdered. It's never good. No. Anyway. Anyway, if you hear about any of these kind of things, a case that you're like, oh, I wonder why they've never covered that. um, Send it our way because there's so many. We just don't hear about them all, um, unfortunately. So, yeah. Yeah, I much appreciate anything being shared, even if it's something we don't end up talking about on the show. I love the shares. I like getting the articles, things like that to look over. It's Mm -hmm. fun. But this has been a slice and we will see you for part three. So goodbye. Bye. I'll call you soon. Okay. Okay. Bye. 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 How do I stop this shit? I'll stop it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Fuck me.